This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The US presidential election has a winner, finally, but not according to the loser, who's still the president for now. The fact-free claims of fraud keep coming from the outgoing president and Team Trump, but how should media organisations responsibly respond to statements that are designed to mislead people and could even undermine US democracy? We ask an organisation set up to monitor the partisan news media. President Trump is extremely good at taking advantage of the the particular vulnerabilities of the U.S. media apparatus. Also this week, the leader of the opposition revealed her front bench picks from a shrunken post-election caucus, and there were some surprises, but also some surprising questions from the media. Okay, favourite bevy? Oh, uh, lemon, lime and bitters. But first, there have been lots of reports lately of a looming fruit and veggie shortage because the foreigners we import to pick them are locked out by COVID-19. And many claims in the media also that Kiwis can't or won't do their job. But is that the full story? The labour shortage battle moves to a courgette field. It really does. And look, this has been really well signalled that we were going to have labour shortage. We've been talking about this for months. In fact, the growers and the horticulture industry have signalled this was going to be a problem. That was Andrew Dickens on News Talk ZB on Monday, picking up on a story that was in the news last weekend and then spread like wildfire on social media too. Courgettes in the news for hitting almost $30 a kilo in the shops just weeks ago are now virtually valueless on one grower's 30-hectare block in Kerikeri because they couldn't be picked on time at harvest time, as Rowena Duncan from NZME's rural show The Country went on to explain. This grower in particular, Brett Hape, uh, normally he'd get 10 staff in from Thailand. They've been coming every year uh, as part of the recognised seasonal employer scheme that brings about 14,000 workers in from other countries. He can't get those workers in from Thailand. He says the government saying, you know, get employing New Zealand workers. He says it's a fallacy. Mm. They just can't find the people. But in one sense, Brett Heap's unpicked courgette crop wasn't really news last Monday. It was just another episode in a long story about the food supply and supply and demand in the labour market that's been running for several years now. Brett Heap was an early user and long-standing supporter of the Recognised Seasonal Employee, or RSE, scheme, which since 2007 has brought increasing numbers of workers from offshore to New Zealand, indeed so many that the industry now depends upon them. In 2017, Brett Heap told the Northland Age newspaper that government rules wouldn't let him bring in more than nine workers from Thailand with the skills and stamina to pick his crops. He told the paper he was told he would have to take Pacific Islanders on the RSE scheme instead, but he wasn't keen on that, according to the Northland Age, citing a potential clash of cultures experienced by a neighbour. Now, last year, Brett Heap was on TBNZ's One News saying this about the restrictions on seasonal foreign workers to pick crops. This cap is effectively a restraining mechanism, not just on us as individual growers, but the industry in its entirety. And that report back in August last year began with dire news about another crop. Kiwis could be paying more than double the price for strawberries this season as one of the country's biggest growers fears she'll be forced to close. Francie Perry says she's not been allocated the overseas pickers necessary as part of the controversial recognised seasonal employer scheme. Francie Perry is a founder of Perry's Berries in Witty, South Auckland and the country's biggest strawberry grower. And back then, her lobbying got a quick result. 
Immigration New Zealand has reviewed its decision and just reinstated Francie Perry's RSE status. Now, naturally, she's delighted. It means she has certainty for the next two seasons. She can build overseas workers' accommodation and she can employ those 1,200 Kiwis. But fast forward a year to 2020 and the COVID border closure has complicated that labour supply issue, as John Campbell told viewers of TVNZ's breakfast show a month ago. And as uh, all rugby fans are well aware, immigration accommodations have been made for the Australian rugby team, plus the English netball team and the West Indies and Pakistan cricket teams and the America's Cup teams. But for experienced seasonal fruit pickers, even from completely COVID-19 free Samoa, they haven't had a single case, our borders remain shut. And in a studio that day to tell them more, a familiar face. Morning, Francine. You've never been on live telly before, have yeah, you? Yeah, you're going to be great. So it's just you and me. I've asked Wendy not to heckle because she's quite rude like that. So we're going to be good. Well, it was her first live on-screen interview, perhaps, but far from the first time talking about this problem in her industry on the air and pushing in the media for more foreign workers to pick her fruit. Indeed, John Campbell himself noted in that interview she'd been in another TVNZ News report not long before that when the election campaign was heating up like this also raised in our debate, bringing in much-needed overseas workers to help our desperate fruit growers. Strawberries could be off the Christmas menu unless the government allows pickers into the country. That's the warning from the country's biggest producer. And as Francie Perry showed then, she was no novice when it came to delivering a soundbite. It's really simple. No overseas workers, no pickers, no work for anybody. But what Francie Berry described as a really simple problem is actually a pretty complicated issue overall. As John Campbell noted the following month, that report sparked a bit of a backlash over pay about the fine print in Perry's Berry's job ads, which prompted this from Kate Hawksby on News Talk ZB. Your job ads placed on seek said that most of the work available is paid by bonus piece rate, where you're required to produce enough to earn at least the current minimum wage to retain your position. Does that mean you need to pick a base amount to retain your position and to get minimum wage? Um, well, obviously, if we, we calculate every last person's productivity. If at the top end we're paying $36 an hour and the bottom end shows $2 an hour, then there are two issues in that. First of all, um, it's very difficult to, for us to supervise people who are picking at $2 an hour because obviously they're not doing very much. And second of all, we can't make it work from a financial perspective for us. Is that legal? Yeah, absolutely legal. But whether that's attractive enough to workers with other options is another matter. And Francie Berry went on to say not every Kiwi is cut out for the work anyway, unlike, she said, Samoans on the RSE scheme. If we have a base number of people coming from um, Apia who are very physically fit, who, unlike us, don't spend a lot of time, or myself, in front of a computer, then they can handle it. Those computers Kiwi sit in front of have a lot to answer for, it seems. And that part of the story has had a lot less media attention right across the industry. Two weeks later, at the end of last month, fears over another favourite summer fruit were hitting the headlines at TVNZ. There are calls to ease work visa restrictions and for more Kiwis to put up their hand to help. And this time the calls were from down south, from cherry growers, who were trying new ways of getting available workers in. And Mike Chapman, the chief executive of Horticulture New Zealand, outlined some of those on NZME's daily rural radio show, The Country. Then while you travel and 
um, enjoy yourself. Yeah, and I see they've got a subsidised camper van so you can go and harvest or pick cherries in central exactly. Otago. And then on your days off, you can cruise around in the most beautiful part of the country. Mike Chapman, hey, thanks very much for your time. Good luck getting some of those foreign workers in to harvest our crops this season. After that, the host of the country, Jamie Mackay, challenged tertiary students to put their hands up. You know, some of these migrant labourers that we're talking about effectively come here and they just work their backsides off because they're here for one reason and one reason only, and that is to make money. And they want to work every day they can, and they do get breaks in the traffic uh, due to weather. So take it up. Go and pick fruit for the summer. You can make good money if you get off your backside. But do you earn good money? We've had a good text into 5009 around the uh, looking for people to pick fruit and things like that. Jamie, it's not that simple. I've just looked into a job picking fruit in the Bay of Plenty. Good money, but they can't provide accommodation for a one-bedroom cottage. It was $500 a week, 2700 up front on bond and admin costs. It was Cromwell-based cherry grower 45 South, which was also pressing the government in the media to act now on the foreign labour shortage, which created that campervan seasonal work combo. But the same day, last Monday, Stuff's agribusiness reporter based in Hawke's Bay, Bonnie Flores, reported that only six out of the 50 camper vans have been booked so far. Later that same day, TVNZ's Seven Sharp kicked the issue along further like this. But a shortage of pickers is threatening growers' livelihoods and turning crops into compost. And for one farmer, his inability to source workers means he's going to pack in a lifetime of work. And no prizes for guessing which grower they were talking about and talking to. Brett Heap from Kirikiri, who has long demanded more freedom to bring in workers from Thailand to pick his courgettes. And then Seven Sharps co-hosts themselves chimed in with their own opinions. It's going to be minimum wage, so pay them more. Yeah, it's hard work, but it's good work. It's good work. Nice outside, all that sort of stuff. Now, if Jeremy Wells was speaking from hard experience of picking fruit and veggies there, he didn't say. And that was really the problem with a lot of the coverage of this serious labour shortage issue. Grumpy growers, agribusiness executives, politicians and even TV and radio hosts have all had their say lately about the work, but we've heard almost nothing in the media from the people who actually do it. In late September, a 25-minute episode of RNZ and Newsroom's daily podcast, The Detail, came and went without speaking to anyone who actually does the work or even hires the people who do, in spite of the fact that Newsroom itself had revealed serious cases of exploitation of RSE orchard workers just the month before. Six weeks ago, in a piece headlined, Is Pay the Problem?, Stuff's farming reporter Bonnie Flores examined the books of a contractor supplying local and foreign labour to growers. She talked to an RSE worker from India and a veteran Kiwi worker on the scene who said the work is hard and the pay doesn't match it. And she also spoke to an orchard owner who set up her own business to avoid using the contractors who clipped the ticket on supplying foreign labour. And another exception in all this was on TVNZ1 News last weekend from reporter Kristen Hall. The chance to get outdoors is what attracted fruit picker Daniel to the industry, but the work is tough. You're picking anywhere from one to five tonnes a day. You're climbing a ladder constantly. It's back-breaking work. He doesn't want to be identified for fear of losing work. He's a veteran picker with experience both here and more recently in Australia. Money hasn't gone up in any significant way for 20 years. And in that report, Kristen Hall also spoke to a first union representative who told her this. We're working with a very large horticulture employer at the moment. We're hoping to reach an agreement around what the rates of pay and other conditions of work should be. 
Now that sounds like the sort of solution we need to hear more about in the media, alongside the calls to import more pickers now through managed isolation and quarantine exemptions. Now this labour shortage story is not going away. Last Wednesday, for example, it took up the entire front page of the Southland Times under the headline, Berry Blues as Harvest Nears. Once again, a concerned grower was the focus of the story. But when Blueberry Country Southland General Manager Simon Barden spoke to the paper, he was actually fairly upbeat. We are certainly feeling positive about the fact that we are getting responses and inquiries from uh, from Kiwis looking for work who perhaps have historically sort of thought, oh yeah, that's the foreign workers, they don't, you know, there might not be opportunities for them. And we're welcoming it. So we're... We're comfortable. And the same day on News Talk ZB, Rowena Duncan from the Country Programme had more good rural employment news out of Southland. Yeah, so we've heard a lot recently about contracting firms who are struggling to get uh, skilled overseas workers in, but there are a couple down in Southland who said they've actually managed to train up a whole heap of Kiwis, uh, get them so they can actually kind of pull their weight now and uh, they've managed to get some people from other industries and stuff so it's nice to hear some of those success stories yeah. as well. And 24 hours later Rowena Duncan was back with news that showed it is possible for horticulture to plan for a future that does involve planning for the labour force. Really good news on the job front. So Bay of Plenty post-harvest kiwifruit facility, they're going to hire hundreds of workers next year because what they've done is invest tens of millions of dollars, which is a massive investment, especially under these COVID times, into a major expansion on a six and a half hectare site at the Tauranga business estate. Uh, so, you know, good accommodation around there. We know that's one of the real challenges in the horticulture industry, not only the workers, but where to put them. So, you know, I think this is a really exciting development. The Mount Pack and Cool Company's plans for the largest individual post-harvest site in New Zealand involves jobs for 500 seasonal workers in addition to the permanent staff from next year. And the kiwifruit industry has boosted accommodation places for seasonal workers since 2018 and now has a five-year plan to double them. The story of the moment is a serious labour shortage and what it might mean for growers, consumers and workers, foreign and domestic, and what can be done about it right now. But the story of how we got here is a big part of that too. How a $9 billion plus industry whose exports have gone up this year under COVID-19 conditions has now ended up dependent upon almost 15,000 foreigners working for low wages. Seven days have now passed since the US media ran the numbers one more time and finally declared Joe Biden the winner of the US presidential election. And some in the media there didn't hold back on their personal feelings about that, like Van Jones on CNN. It's easier to tell your kids character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. Being a good person matters. And for people in the media there who have been smeared by Donald Trump for so long as the enemy of the people, it was probably hard to keep personal feelings out of it. Likewise, at Rupert Murdoch's Fox News network, where the hosts were big backers of Trump and the Republicans, and they didn't like the result, or sometimes even acknowledge it as legitimate. And some in the media here had their hearts on their sleeves too, and their objectivity back in the locker a bit. On the latest uh, from the US, let's begin. It's good to have a president this morning. Yeah, isn't it good? Yeah. How good was Kamala Harris's speech yesterday? Whoa. My goodness. I cried. Yeah, it was extraordinary. Yeah, it was beautiful. 
There was the team at TVNZ's breakfast show when they were back on the air on Monday morning. Now, when a story is so all-consuming across all media, perhaps it is hard for live hosts not to say something. But the day before, on RNZ's Sunday morning show, Waikato University lecturer Al Gillespie made this point. Well, for us, it's a curiosity while watching what happens with America. We're good friends, and the result won't really make that much difference. But if you're in Iran, or if you're in Venezuela, or if you're in China, the outcome will have a direct impact on the way that your country works and your foreign policy is orientated. So if you're in Venezuela, the debate will be whether whether Biden will now start to talk to the regime again or whether the sanctions will start to end. If you're in Iran, you may find that the, the chances of conflict might start to diminish. And put like that, it does feel a bit like our media might have made a bit of a meal of the 2020 US election. But here, we simply don't have anything like the partisanship they have in the US media or the hostility between the government and the mainstream news media reporting on it. But we don't have to look too far for a place that does. In Australia, the news outlets owned by Rupert Murdoch and the editorial staff they employ often take political sides to influence public opinion. One month ago, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd proclaimed Rupert Murdoch was a cancer on our democracy and he launched a petition demanding a royal commission into his power and influence over the media there. And one month later, that petition was presented to the federal parliament with the signatures of more than half a million Australians on it. Now, One of them was from former Prime Minister and political rival Malcolm Turnbull who told the ABC this last weekend. What's happened is that crazy, bitter partisanship of social media has taken over much of what we used to call the mainstream media. So the Murdoch press that used to be, uh, you know, a journalistic operation, a news operation that tended to lean more to the right than the left, has now become a vehicle of political propaganda. There is no... It is just a political operation. Now, there's no such thing as royal commissions in the US, of course, but when Kevin Rudd spoke to CNN about his petition on Monday, he hinted that they might like to try something similar in the US. What America does on that is a matter for America. But when I look at Fox and its central role in this presidential election campaign, effectively as an arm of the Republican Party, I don't think it's been good for the overall Democratic project. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, those who watch the media in the US have similar reservations. In the aftermath of the US presidential election, Americans have divided into two alternate realities. In the first, occupied by most media outlets and a majority of voters, Joe Biden has become the president-elect after securing a decisive Electoral College victory. His next tasks are transitioning to the White House and picking an executive team. In the second, occupied by right-wing media like Fox News and millions of Republicans, shadowy forces have conspired to steal the election from their nominee, Donald Trump. Only one of these realities is grounded in observable fact. There's no evidence of widespread election fraud, no plausible explanation for how Democrats swung the presidential vote in multiple states, often under the noses of Republican state legislatures, while failing to generate that same swing towards down-ballot Democratic candidates in the House or Senate. Nearly every allegation put forward by Trump or his supporters has already been debunked. A lack of evidence hasn't stopped Trump or his allies trying to reinforce their own version of reality. The president has repeatedly called the election fraudulent and illegitimate, starting like this on election night. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election 
Frankly, we did win this election. He's been backed by media supporters, including Fox News primetime host Sean Hannity, who had this to say. Now, tonight, millions of Americans, you do feel betrayed. According to Politico, look at this. 70% of Republicans, they don't believe this election was free, fair, and for good reason. We saw blatant election law violations in state after state. We've watched the poll observers push 6, 20, some even saying to cameras and now on affidavits 100 feet away. Republican leaders have also thrown their weight behind Trump, with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo promising a smooth transition of power to a second Trump administration. These efforts appear to be an attempt to undermine or steal the election, ironically marshaled online under the tagline Stop the Steal. This has thrown up a dilemma for traditional media. A president's declarations are inherently newsworthy. So are the words of a senator or an elected official. But how do these organisations responsibly cover these statements when they know they're likely to mislead their audience and ultimately harm their country's democracy? Tech companies too have had to grapple with their own complicity in what's essentially an organised disinformation campaign. They've broken with their traditional hands-off approach to misinformation and added warnings to some of the most disingenuous posts on so-called election fraud. Despite that, misinformation continues to go viral, particularly on Facebook. Another dilemma faces politicians. On the night he was projected as the next president by every major news network in the US, Joe Biden had this to say. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. And to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies, they are Americans. They are Americans. The Bible tells us to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. But how does someone like Biden achieve his stated aim of unifying or healing the country when millions of people are tuning into Fox News every night to be served a smorgasbord of baseless claims about election fraud? Matt Gertz is a senior fellow at Media Matters, an organisation set up to critique US conservative media. He joined me to talk about what happens when a major party and its media backers become untethered from reality, and whether real journalists can do more to mitigate that damage. Kia ora Matt and welcome to Media Watch. Hi, thanks for having me. So your country's in seemingly a a spiralling democratic crisis right now. Let's start with the traditional media. On election night, Donald Trump comes out and does what everyone predicted he would do. He tells people the election was a fraud. Now, right from that moment, how should traditional media have treated his statements? I think the primary problem actually starts with the statement itself. He should not have been aired on all of these networks to do something that we all knew he was going to do. This has been a problem throughout uh, the Trump administration. The press has a sort of general understanding that uh, President Trump lies constantly uh, on matters big and small, large and petty, but they have found themselves unable to cope with that by taking obvious precautions like not broadcasting his statements uh, publicly, but by instead recording them and being able to provide them with a little bit of context. You know, 
this was all predictable and predicted. And so the media was somewhat flat-footed on this. It, it, it always seems to be the case that uh, journalists start to realize what the problem is a little bit after the damage has already been done. And so you're seeing at least uh, an unwillingness now to carry statements from his press secretary about the election in the same sort of live manner. But again, you know, this is sort of an ongoing assault on the democratic process coming from the president himself. And I think there's less urgency than, than you might like, given those circumstances coming from the press corps. Is it just that there's this deep unwillingness from media and it's because it's baked into reporters that you need to be objective. I'm using air quotes around that word. You need to cover both sides. You need to give each side a fair hearing. And so this idea that you should just not cover one side or call out their claims as baseless, even if that's true, is something that press are really struggling with because it makes them feel like they're not being objective. Yes, I think that President Trump is extremely good at taking advantage of the particular vulnerabilities of the U.S. media apparatus, of recognizing these holes in U.S. journalistic practices and and working them to his best advantage. The, the process that the president uses, as Steve Bannon, uh, you know, his former longtime political advisor, said, the media is the enemy. Uh, the Democrats are, are there, but the media is the real enemy. And the way that you defeat them is, in his words, you flood the zone with shit. You put out as much lies and misinformation and conspiracy theories and nonsense as you can, because there's only so much of it that they'll be able to get a hold of at any one time. And by doing more of this, you actually make it harder for them to hold you accountable for any individual piece of it. And I don't, I don't think journalists ever figured out how to deal with that. I'm not sure that there is a good answer for how to deal with that. The problem is the willingness of the president and of uh, his enablers to uh, engage in this sort of behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So now what you essentially do have is the president and lots of his supporters, as you say, uh, successfully convincing huge swathes of America that the election was illegitimate, that there was voter fraud, even if there's no evidence of that, and the cases are being thrown out of court. Just before we move on, how does the mainstream media deal with that? I think at the very least, journalists really need to be explaining to their audiences how weak the president's cases are, how little evidence that has been presented, uh, the the fact that uh, various allegations keep getting thrown out of court altogether uh, and are nonetheless continuing to be parroted by the president. The reality, though, is that a lot of this is out of their control. You know, you have a situation where a vast swath of the U.S. populace is only listening to right-wing media sources. They're only paying attention to Fox News and, you know, the stuff that they see on their Facebook pages. And there, they get a sort of 24-7 barrage of lies and disinformation. Uh, And the press can't actually crack that. Now, a huge amount of Joe Biden's post-victory messaging was actually about unity. He said, it's a time to heal. He talked about emphasis, the United States of America. 
even if he takes office, which actually doesn't appear to be a given, how is it possible to have a United States of America when you have essentially a propagandic network that every night millions of people are tuning into to be told that Democrats are evil and the election has been stolen? But I do think at the end of the day, Joe Biden will be president. I, 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 I do want to step back a, a little bit from the ledge on that one. I, I think that we have uh, certainly more chaos and uncertainty in the process than uh, people would like. But but I do think that that is where we're headed. But but I think you, you are correct that a large percentage of the populace at this point is unlikely to accept that, that the combination of President Trump and congressional Republicans and networks like Fox News all preaching this same message of an illegitimate election uh, is likely to stick with a big percentage of their base. What do you say to people who think it's just two sides of the same coin? You know, you have Rachel Meadow and Chris Hayes on one side, and you have Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity on the other. I mean, I don't think that the uh, I don't think the content analysis is accurate. I think that MSNBC's coverage is, is much more honest than Fox News's. But even if you just ignore that entirely, the level of influence that Fox News has is wildly greater than any media outlet has had on any president uh, in, in modern history. It's, it's just an astonishing level of power wielded by people whose jobs it is to uh, rile up Americans and get them and keep them coming back uh, to hear more uh, hateful rhetoric. Yeah, well, but the, the idea of Fox News, news from a conservative perspective, isn't bad in and of itself. I guess the problem for you now is that you essentially have a propaganda network that is no longer reflecting uh, the reality that's playing out on the ground. Yes, I mean, I mean, there are shows that you can point to that, that are news with a more conservative perspective, but a, a show like Sean Hannity's or Tucker Carlson's on Laura or Laura Ingram's on Fox News, which these are their primetime shows. They have you know, three, four, five million viewers every night. Those are not from a conservative perspective. They they are propaganda shows. They are creating a, a deep-seated alternative narrative that is just wildly filled with conspiracy theories uh, and falsehoods. And there is not enough basis in reality to rebut it necessarily or to try to pull people out of it uh, by providing them some information from, from a different uh, perspective. Have technology companies done enough to stop democracy being undermined? I know that uh, Facebook and Twitter, they added uh, labels on the bottom of claims of election fraud saying they're disputed. Should they have said those claims about election fraud were false? Have they done enough? I think the the underlying model of Facebook in particular, but social media networks in general, is just very, very difficult to square with trying to create a healthy information system. The scale is so large that it's incredibly difficult to patrol without substantially larger resources than the uh, companies are willing to pour into them. You've seen some progress, I think, uh, and uh, the progress mainly, I, I think, raises the question of why, why it took so long to do all of this uh, in the first place. But I, I think broadly, the problems of scale and scope 
are incredibly difficult to solve with little notes on uh, particular claims. Is this the guiding principle that has to be there going forward for tech companies, for traditional media? You just need to elevate truth and eliminate misinformation and pursue those goals relentlessly, no matter which side of the aisle that truth or that misinformation is coming from. I think you have to. If, if that's not what you're doing, then what are you doing? You're, you're passing more lies off to more, to more of your audience. Uh, you're really doing damage to the political system by uh, ensuring that uh, the process is tainted with falsehood. Thank you so much for joining me, Matthew Goertz. Thanks for having me. That was Matthew Goertz from the US media watchdog Media Matters talking to Hayden Donnell. And you can hear more of that conversation on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz, or our section of the RNZ app, or you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And there you'll also hear more from Hayden about that in this week's Midweek Media Watch, where he also spoke to Karen Hay about flabby ex-All Blacks making great reality TV and doing current affairs in the form of song. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, last weekend on the show, we heard how the media were weighing up the new ministers in the new government's cabinet. And this week, it was the opposition's turn to unveil its front bench to oppose them. The party recorded short little slow-mo videos of each portfolio holder featuring their new job title and the soundtrack. So far so funky, or in fact a little bit chipmunky. But the media were not so upbeat about who went up and who went down. Judith Collins announced her caucus reshuffle today and pushed Paul Goldsmith into his $4 billion fiscal hole. That was News Hub's harsh take on the reshuffle, and political reporter Jenna Lynch was no kinder to the former finance spokesperson. Was that expected? Absolutely. Goldie had to go. But for RNZ, the angle was the surprise rise of the MP coming up to replace Paul Goldsmith. The dramatic promotion has already caused some wrinkles, with Simon Bridges turning down a role in response. Andrew Bailey is a chartered accountant and a former merchant banker, so his skills do fit the role. And likewise, physician Dr Shane Retty, health spokesperson and now the new Deputy National Party leader. But he didn't seem ready for this question from Heather Duplessy-Allen on Newstalk ZB shortly after his appointment. OK, favourite bevy? Oh, uh, lemon, lime and bitters. Interesting. Has that got alcohol in it? No, and so the question you're asking is, do I drink? And the answer is no. Why not? Now, at this point, Dr Etty could have said, mind your own business, or isn't it good to have a shadow health spokesperson who's stone-cold sober in a COVID-19 crisis? But he told her it was actually a hangover from his Mormon upbringing, inviting further questions from Heather Duplessy-Allen. Have you ever had a drink? Uh, not that I can think of, no. Seriously, your whole life, you've never had one alcoholic beverage? Mm. 
No, no, look, uh, I, I could enjoy fizzy drink and, and juices and all sorts of other things. Uh, and so, yes, I think that, that is correct. And what about coffee and tea? But even after Dr Shane was off the line, or should that be Deputy Shane, his teetotalism was all they could talk about. If you were to get drunk on Angostura bitters, you must have a cast-iron stomach. Jeez, imagine if we spiked his hot chocolate, what would happen? And at 5.30pm, the shock news that National's new deputy wasn't a drinker was actually leading the ZB headlines, ahead of the news that Judith Collins had held on to her job as leader. He's known as Dr Shane, and it turns out new National Party deputy leader is Sober Shane too. Shane Reti told Heather Duplessy Allen he likes a lemon, lime and bitters and can't recall ever having an alcoholic drink. He says he had a Mormon upbringing, and as he got older, it became his own choice to abstain. That's all from the Media Watch team for this week, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.